listening to our New Chapel podcast. We're for people to connect with God and be raised to new life in Christ. Be sure to connect with us at newchapel.com and on social media to stay up to date on everything happening here at New Chapel. Happy birthday. After nine years and so many stories of life change and and baptisms and salvations, I just want to say thank you. I want to say thank you to all those. Yes, absolutely. Thank you to all of you in the room and who are watching that helped. Thank you for those of you that have gone on throughout the years, and you were the scaffolding that helped build this building, and you're watching today. Thank you. This church owes you a debt of gratitude. Guys, we made it, and the best is yet to come. Can I hear an amen? Absolutely. You know, it is an exciting time here at New Chapel. Uh, Not only is this our ninth birthday, but you might have noticed out inside the lobby commons area, we have our group's fair that opened up today. That's going to happen this week and next week. And so I'd like you to go out there as we leave today and sign up for a group. If you've never done that before, I'm specifically talking to you. Uh, like get right, (laughs) you know, like go sign up for one of those things and ask anybody that's been in them. I mean, some of you guys are horrified of of joining a small group. You think we're going to drag a chair to the middle of the room, make you confess all of your sins out loud to everybody. And then we're going to go to Sam's Club and get the big bottle of olive oil and just open it and go on your head and slap our hands and pray the devil out of you. That is a ridiculous fear for you to have. We don't do that until second semester. And so it's... (laughs) It's nothing like that at all. Sign up for a small group. It will be life-changing. And then also you saw in that video sequence our our spiritual growth campaign is launching in two weeks. It's called Made for More. And here's the idea, gang. We are going to be spending six weeks talking about your God-given purpose. In fact, next week we're going to be giving out a free book uh, paid for by the partners at New Chapel free for every single person who's in attendance, both kids, there's a kid's edition of this, and for adults, and we're going to be giving this to you. It's a 40-day journey that we're going to be able to go on as a church, six messages, 40-day devotional. There's going to be, even in the small groups, there are topical small groups like we've had all throughout the years, but at those small groups, it's going to be seen through the vignette of purpose, that God has a plan for your life, that you were not made for the mundane. God has a plan for your life, and you were made for more. Can I hear an amen, church? And so in two weeks, you don't want to miss that perfect opportunity to bring somebody with you. You don't want to miss any of that. Now grab something to take notes with, and if you have your Bibles, open with me to the book of Genesis. Genesis, first book in the Bible. If you're new to Christianity, all the way on the left, right after like the ISBN number, it's the book of Genesis. And I want to show you something in this uh, particular passage. Before I do that, you know, when our church was brand new, I was inviting, I mean, everybody. Anybody that's breathing that I knew, I'm inviting you to church. And I'm reaching out to old friends. And one of the people that I reached out to was a high school friend that her and I really got on really well. I mean, people even said that we look like brother and sister in school. And I reached out and I invited her to church. And she made it very clear in no uncertain terms, I'm not going to your church. And I was kind of blown away because most people, even if they have no intention of going to your church, oh, praise God, you know, they'll, they'll grab the little invite, they'll shake it at you, smile and walk away. She was, she was straight up. And, and so, like, I knew her well. I had, I had the relational change in my pocket to be like, well, why? And she said, well, I can't stand Christians. Now, I had to think on my feet for a second. I'm glad I did. And I said, well, I can't stand them either. In fact, I can't stand Christians so much, I had to plant my own church to get away from the church crowd and, and, and do my own thing. And, and it made her smile a little bit. That's, by the way, the best that I got in that conversation. She never came to this church. But, but I thought about, <laughs> you were waiting for a testimony, right? Testimony is I thought on my feet. And so, but in, in talking to her, I realized what, what a lot of people outside of these doors think about church and what they think about Christians. Like, I can't stand them. I can't stand how they act. They're mean. They're judgmental. They're upset all the time. They're just cranky. They're pointing at everything that needs to change. And I can't stand Christians. And and I thought about that, and it's like, man, the Christians that I know, the ones that I really think are, are Christ followers, the ones that had impact on me, mean, golly, that's not the word I would use at all to describe who they are. 
They were patient with me, and they were kind, and they answered my questions, and they, they took time to do it. But I do know this. I had my own encounters with people that were judgy, had a finger to point, wanted to take my inventory. You know what I'm talking about, anybody? Like, like we have to realize that when we invite people to church, when we, we invite people to a relationship with God, there's a little bit of a chip on the shoulder that looks at us and questions what it's all about, and it's because of their approach to God. Now, everybody has an approach to God, including atheists. And this person, I think she was like an agnostic, but, but including an atheist, they would say, I don't even believe in God. But they have a chip on the shoulder. They, they have their own viewpoint, a worldview about God. In fact, the Bible says that he put eternity in the heart of every man. So, so trust me when I say, even the people that are that are even stoic and they push away, no, I don't believe in it. They have a worldview and it's based on something. And so the question I want to give for you today, maybe you should ask it with your accountability partner or, or talk with uh, your partner on the way home is this. Here's the question. What's going to be your approach to God? How are, how are you going to approach him altogether? What's the filter that you look at God through, your worldview, your mindset? And I would submit to you today that it is massive. The way that you approach God is huge. And if you don't do it well, if you don't do it in the vignette that he has, you're going to miss almost everything, maybe everything. Now, had you turned to Genesis, uh, Genesis 1, by the way, is the first story in the Bible. It's creation. I would submit to you it's actually your first story, too. Uh, the second story in the Bible is all about choice. And it is, by the way, the second story in your life. I'm going to start reading in Genesis chapter 2 in verse 8. Now the Lord had planted a garden in Eden. God made all kinds of trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life. Everybody say tree of life. Tree of life. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everybody say the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now these were two trees. You might be familiar with the fact that there was one tree that they ate of the fruit of and it made them fall. There were two trees. It was in the middle, dead center, epicenter. That's focus. Now, these were literal trees, but hear me now, this was also spiritual. It's very spiritual. And we'll find today that it was also very symbolic, especially for our walk with God in the New Testament. It continues on in verse 16. <clears throat> the Lord God commanded the man, you are free. Eat any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. Next chapter, Genesis chapter 3. So we had creation, we had choice. Now we have your enemy, the enemy of your soul, the devil, Satan, and he's pushing the wrong choice on mankind. This is what it says in Genesis 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals. He said to the woman, did God really say, remember that, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The devil is trying to make her doubt God's word. He's actually quoting the word back in a different way. He didn't say you can't eat of any. He said don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? Uh, the woman says to the serpent, we may eat. So she's, she's trying to defend what she knows, right? We may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. The tree in the middle? There's two trees. So there's already deception at play, right? And you must not touch it. Must not touch it? Where did he say that you must not touch it? He didn't say that. And in fact, if you read Genesis 1, it was their command. They had to touch it because they needed to have dominion over that tree and all the other trees in the garden. So it needed to be touched that you must not touch it or you will die. The devil has been since our earliest and most primitive time all the way through now, trying to make you second guess what God has said in his word. Did God really say? He'll try to feed it back to you in a distorted way, and you'll feed off from that. And he's actually trying to appeal to something in you, to your good nature, by quoting it back. He's, he's, it's, it's massive. i gotta, I got to press on. Genesis 3, it, it says this. You will not surely die. Well, now he's taking a direct opposition. He didn't lead with that, though. I remember when I was young, uh, we got our first cable box in the house, and Comedy Central was one of the channels that we had, and they would play old reruns of comedy shows, and as a young kid, you can imagine how much I loved Gallagher. He was the guy, if you remember, that squashed the watermelons, and it hit everybody in the face. And I remember watching that. My dad, you know, our family was in show business and, and was on stages. I mean, so he's, he's telling me, you like that. 
Notice, Joe, that Gallagher didn't lead with the watermelons on everybody's face. What are you talking about? He spent like an hour telling them jokes, building them up to hysteria, and then they accepted the watermelon. Say, Pastor Joe, what are you talking about? It's exactly what the enemy did. He didn't lead with, God's a liar. It's not going to work. It's not going to get through your filter. He's going to try to disarm you, and then he's going to take a direct out, but you're not going to die. You will not surely die, the serpent said, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened. Ah, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You'll be like God? Wait a second. Was not Adam and Eve created in the image of God? He's got her on the defensive to defend someone who she already is. He's, he's trying to say, you're not going to die. You're going to be like God. And it's not going to make you worse. It's going to make you better. And again, Satan did not appeal to her sin nature. He's not like, come on, Eve. Come on, girl, let's be bad. No, he's, he's not leading with let's be bad. He's appealing to her goodness. He's trying to say, hey, you want to be good. This is really the way that you're going to be the best in all of this. He's appealing to her desire for godliness, not to her desire for sin. And you'll see it today. I'll bring it out in living color. That's why a lot of people, even in the body of Christ, in their pursuit of God, turn a lot of people off. Or they fall in their walk with God. It's because Satan is not trying to tempt them with getting drunk and going out and, and driving wild. He's not trying to tempt them with a, a, a lascivious lifestyle. He's tempting them by making them a religious nut. It goes on, verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. He was with her? Oh, this is the first limp-wristed, noodle-back, weakling husband in Scripture who needed to be like, hey, point of order, that's not what God said. And number two, why are you talking to snakes? That's gross. You know, like, why isn't he helping in this process? And, and guys, here's how you know that you're sourcing from the wrong tree. It says this, then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings. They, their eyes were opened, what? To all of their deficits, to where they were failing, to where, and, and what, what comes with that? A loss of innocence. And then what did they do? They sewed fig leaves together to make a loincloth. That's what I'm picturing in, in my holy imagination. What are they doing? They're ashamed. What happens when you begin to source from the wrong tree, if you will. This is symbolic, right? It's very literal. This happened, but it's symbolic. When you source from that wrong tree, you end up being full of shame and you lose innocence in your walk with God. And God never wanted that for them. In fact, he had to kick them out of the garden because if they would have ate from the tree of life, which they were used to eating from, they would have ate from the tree of life, it would have cemented, sealed, ratified the spiritual condition that they were in, and he knew at that moment they needed a Messiah. In fact, he knew it before the world was ever created. i got to press on. I would present to you today that yes, in creation, but all through the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, there are two choices always in front of you. Two different things that you can source your walk with God from. The first is the tree of life. And in the New Testament, and, and for us, it's our relationship with God through Jesus. But the second source is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what does that look like? It, it's, it's you sourcing from guilt, a loss of innocence, and shame, and it makes you spiral downward. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay. I hope that you have something to take notes with on. These are very profound statements. If you don't, maybe even take out your phone and, and, and take a screenshot of these. So these are symbolic, right? If you're sourcing from the wrong spot, the knowledge of good and evil, write this one down. Here's what your anthem is going to be. I'll do more to get to God. I'm going to do more. If I just do more, if I get this down, if I, if I, if I read enough chapters in my Bible, really? If I just do more, religious people by the way, love this because they can say, did you read all the chapters? Did you get your time of prayer? How long did you pray? Did you pray for everybody? Show me that prayer list. Well, I did this. And they start playing like poker, but it's spiritual poker. Who's got the better hand? They love the measuring stick of doing more. And they think they're more godly if they can outdo 
other people. But the right source, the godly source, the tree of life, here's what its anthem would say. I can receive what Jesus already did. Do you see the difference? There's do, I gotta do, I gotta do. And then there's Jesus did. Thank God I can receive all of that. Say amen, somebody. It's do versus did. Listen to me very carefully, and this is massive. Jesus paid it all. That is massive. He finished the work on the cross. Can I hear an amen, somebody? And there's nothing that you can add to that to get to God. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't do great things. God has great things for you to do, but it's not to earn relationship with him. Some of the meanest Christians that I've, some of the meanest people I've ever met have been Christians who know a lot of the Bible and do a lot of good outward things, but they're mean as a snake. Boy, I'm so glad about what's happening in the body of Christ. You know, there's a lot of camaraderie that's happening, especially since all of the shutdowns happened two years ago. You know, we realize we're not fighting against the Baptists and the Methodists. We're on the same team, everybody. And some of those old guys back in the 80s and 90s, they knew the word of God, but the problem was they were mean as a snake. And it's because all about what you could do, what you could perform and all of it. And the Pharisees of the Bible were exactly like this. John 5, what does Jesus say? He says, hey, Pharisees, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These scriptures testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. And that's where it is. It's found in Jesus. It's not in all the holy aerobics you can do. Stand up, sit down, take a kneel, stand up again, confess this, come over here, and just be the spiritual police, the confession police, going through your church, pointing out the wrong everybody's doing. That's not a spiritual gift, by the way. What God is trying to do is build this church up, and he's trying to do it through a life-giving relationship with Jesus. Can I hear an amen, church? I love this quote from Gavent. Uh, the quote goes like this. The Pharisees were good, faithful, religious people of their day. And it is the good, faithful, religious of every era who find themselves in conflict with Jesus. Now, I am not against being good and faithful, but religious I am. What is religion? Not in your notes, jot this down. Religion is man's attempt to reach God. That's what religion is. What is Christianity? It is God's success in reaching man, and he did it through Jesus. It is a relationship. It is not a denomination, an order, a rite, a ritual, or a religion. It is a relationship with your God. Can I hear an amen, somebody? I got to move on. The wrong source. If you're sourcing from the wrong spirit, you'll say this. I'm going to try to get God's approval. Write that down. I'm going to try to get God's approval. I'm going to work for it. And if you're of that paradigm, you better work for it. You better act right. Because he's mad. He's angry God. Many see people like God. They see God as mad God. As though he's just angry at you. He's furious. It's just like you come and you bring an offering. It's like, that's the least you could do. Just dismissive and upset that you're even there. And listen to me. Your view of God is massive. God is good. And we need to realize that because if you don't, the way that you look at God, the way that you view him, is the way that you're going to relate to him will determine how you receive from him. It's a huge deal. Now, when I was growing up, uh, I grew up in a country church, and, and there was a lot of that church that I actually really loved. And at the same time, there were a lot of things that I realized as I progressed in my relationship with Jesus that gave me a little bit of a different perspective. Uh, one thing for sure is my pastor act like he was like born and raised in hell. The way he talked about it would like make you really convinced that like this is something you really know. And and we were country people, and so we said hell with two syllables. Anybody else grew up in that church? It wasn't hell, it was hey yo. You don't get right, you're gonna go to hey yo. It was like, oh my gosh, this guy knows what he's talking about. And, and we, we were of a church that had tracks. Any of you grow up with a church, you gave, gave you tracks, little tracks. There, there were these little booklets that you'd go and hand out, talk about Jesus. And, and listen, most of those tracks, I would even say I agree with them. But some of the art in those tracks scared me. 
because it had this, this like vision of God. And here's, you know what I'm talking about. It's God, and it looks like he kicked Abraham Lincoln off from the seat in the monument, and he's sitting on Abraham Lincoln monument seat. And God is massive. And the people all around him look like little ants. And he's sitting there stoic. And when you look up at his face, it's just like beams of light coming out of his face. And I think, <laughs> it's crazy. I think that the heart of those people was to try to be like, hey, nobody's seen the face of God, and I'm not going to draw that, and you know, we, we pale in comparison to the, to the stature of who he is. I think it all was done with a good heart. But what did I take from it? That God is a faceless, emotionless, stoic God, and it reinforced all the anger that I was feeling, mainly because of how I behave with my life. And, and so I'd look at these tracks and be like, I can't give these out to anybody. I'm not even worthy to go talk to people about their faith because I got to deal with sunshine and it's a lot to deal with and it scared me. And for some of you, that's the perspective that you had about him. And we're sourcing from the wrong tree. The right source says this, write it down. I can receive God's love for me. You can try to get God's approval or you can realize you haven't. You have his approval. He loves you. If God has a fridge up in heaven, this guy's face is on that fridge, everybody. Like, I have his approval. It's beyond what I do. I have nothing to prove to anybody, chiefly God, because he said. And so I have to find my peace and resolve in that truth and source from a relationship that's life-giving. Many don't see him correctly because they're sourcing from the wrong paradigm. But what does Romans 5 say? Huge deal. God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still spitting on him, yelling crucify him, angry at while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His love for you is beyond what you've ever done or whatever you will do. He loves you and he approves of you. Can I hear an amen, somebody? Jesus didn't pause the crucifixion and say, okay, okay, wait a second. I just want to take a poll and make sure that they're going to love me back. He didn't do that. He died for you while we were still cursing him to his face. Some of those people were healed in his ministry and were yelling crucify him. And his love is, is over all of that. The Bible says, for the joy, book of Hebrews, I believe, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What is the joy? It's you. What kept him on that cross instead of calling those legions of angels to get him off? What, what kept it? No man killed him. He laid down his life. What made it so he was able to do that? His love for you. He loves you. He cares for you. He saw you before you were born all the way through your life, and he can see your last day from the beginning. And he loves you so much. And that friend is why I love him so much. I love him. I love what he's done in my family. I love what he's done in my kids and in my life. I look at that, and it's not a response to the great performance that I put on. It is his grace on this man that has made way for me to become who I am today. Wow. If the church, if the church in the world, but I would even chiefly say in western Michigan, could get this, the love of God, I'm telling you, our buildings couldn't contain the growth. i got to move on. The wrong source, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what does it say? It says, I will focus. Me, I'm going to focus on the externals. So I'm going to put on the right clothes, whatever that means. And I'm going to act right. I'm going to do. I'm going to show everybody. But the right source, the tree of life, what does it say? I'm going to focus on the internal. I'm going to focus on what God is doing in here. I'm going to focus on the, on the journey that God has me on. And this, by the way, is the biggest difference in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, they had law that was like Ten Commandments engraved in stone. And they had all of the Bible later on on scrolls. And that's where the law lived. And, and all of it was this. Here's the prescription. Now act right. You've you got to work this out. And it was to preserve a godly lineage for Jesus. It was to keep the people as holy as they could be. But in the New Testament, since Jesus, it's an internal change. In other words, he takes you from death to life. Did you know that there's no such thing as a spiritual healing? 
God doesn't heal you. He raises the dead. He raises that dead part of you. You become alive unto him. And here's what happens. It says this in the New Testament, that he rates his law on your heart. In other words, the change that you need, he works out in here first before he worries about the externals. Massive deal. It goes from, I got to do this. I got to do right. I got I to check this off my list too. I get to do it. A huge motivation change. And parents, by the way, this is the key to you raising your kids. I heard a stat recently from a poll, Gallup poll. 70% of church kids, when they go to college age and they graduate from high school, they go on, 70% leave the church never to return again. Listen to me, 70 And it's more than that, because it's starting in our house. It's, it's church people giving all the do's and don'ts and act right. And, and I don't put pressure on my kids that you've got to come to church because you're the pastor's kids. You better be the perfect kids. You tell me that my kids were acting wild back in class, it's almost to be expected. Like, I get it. Like, they're people, and I'm growing them up and developing them. But here's the big mark difference. I'm not just trying to correct the outside. I'm trying to make their heart fall in love with Jesus. And that will make all of the do's and don'ts work out. It's not just college. And I get it. Our colleges are rotten. But I'm going to tell you something. If you wait until that spot, you've already lost them. 70% are leaving the church because the, these are our kids. Not different kids, the church kids with their little Bible cases swinging by and dressing up for, for, for new kids. It's them that are leaving, never to return again. And it's because we got to get to the heart of the situation and stop trying to pick it. Listen, if you get to the church and you get a big old fight on the way to church, heck, come in here, let's have the rest of it out. Don't fake it in front of your kids. Don't teach them to be hypocrites. I'm trying... I'm just trying to say, take your church face from your previous church, put it on a shelf at home as a memorial to who you used to be, and you come into this house and be real in the presence of God. We got to do something. And that's why I am so, so, so happy that New Chapel launched our first student ministry called Student Culture this past Wednesday. Absolutely. Now, let me tell you about it. It was awesome. We had a crowd that was there, and this is the real point I want you to get excited about. Six young people gave their lives to Jesus on that Wednesday. That is awesome. What does the Bible say? 1 Samuel chapter 16, the Lord does not look at things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at thee, say with me, the heart. He's worried about you becoming not all the external. Say amen, somebody. Boy, I better move on. The wrong source, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, what does it say? I'm going to obey out of duty. I'm going to be dutiful. Why? Because I have to. Do you know why I accepted Christ? I'm going to be honest with you. It was not because of my overwhelming love for the Trinity. You know why I didn't want to go to hell? That's the real reason. It was, not, I don't even know if that's being dutiful. It's like, I don't want to go to hell. And so I acknowledge your Lord. And I remember, especially when I rededicated my life to Christ, I was 17 years old. I went to that church. People were lifting their hands, just worshiping the Lord. They were in love with him. And I remember praying like, God, help me with that. Because I don't love you like that. I acknowledge you as Lord. And men, let me help you with this. Because you see some people and they're like, oh my gosh, you're so wonderful. And you're like, that's so weird. You know, your hands are in your pocket like, oh my gosh. Let me just tell you something. Ask for God to help you to love him. And, and it doesn't have to look all frilly. We're not going to hand out a flag for you to dance in the altar. None of that. Some people take their shoes off when they get to church. That's gross. Leave your shoes on. Grossness all out. I just want to dance like David Dan. You dance like David Dance and Joe Escarano is going to escort you out of this church so quickly. <laughs> Make your head spin. But let me tell you something, men. You can acknowledge your your Lord, and I love what you did in me. It doesn't mean you have to get all flowery and everything else like that. Your wife gets all flowery, praise the Lord. My wife listens to flowery Christian music. Oh, it's hallelujah, you know, she's, you know, just all of that. 
And I don't, I don't cast stones on that. No shade, right? I'm happy for her, but I'm a man. And some churches make the, the level of entry a little bit difficult with that. You can say, Jesus, you're Lord. Thank you for what you've done in my life. Work it out on my kids. I love you. Say amen, somebody. Men, you want to be real men, lead your home in that way. And so here's the idea. We need to obey God, write it down, out of delight. Out of delight. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be dutiful in many ways. I think the church needs to get back to that. But you can't serve them out of that source. You can't obey out of that source. You, you can obey God. You need to obey God. But you have to do it in such a way that you're doing it out of this heart for him. I go to conferences every once in a while, and I'll talk with other pastors. And, and honestly, it's why I'm kind of a loner at those things. I'll sit in the back of the room by myself, like, I'm good. You all shake your own hand, you know, and I'm just, I'm taking notes, getting the info I need. But some of these guys, they're like, you know, hi, my name is so-and-so. And, oh, that's great. Tell me about you. Well, I surrendered to the ministry. Surrendered. God called me, and I had other things I wanted to do, but... I, sur- I gave over to the call, and it's like, what? That yeah. sounds like a real blast around your church, you know, just. You know how I feel? I feel like, thank you, God, for choosing me. I wouldn't have chose me. Thank you. This is awesome. And by the way, for the next 20, 40 years, however the Lord gives me, I will be giving my life over to New Chapel because I'm in love with it. It's my delight. Does that make sense, everybody? And that's the heart you need to have. Now, listen, in no way. Am I saying that you don't need to obey God? You must. You can't throw out his commands. But what does it say in 1 John? This is love for God, to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. Jesus said his yoke, his way of doing things, it's easy and light. Why? He's carrying the weight of it. And if your heart's towards him, he's doing that work, and you can trek with your God on it. Now, they don't have to be burdensome. I want to give you three things in the moments that we have left. Just three thoughts. If you're sourcing from the right source, if you're, if you're going towards the tree of life, having a life-giving relationship with God, these are three things that will be staples in your life. Number one, I will fall in love with Jesus. Well, Pastor Joe, I heard you talking about that, and that's, that's easier said than done. You just say, God, I acknowledge what you've done. I acknowledge you, who you are, not the institution of church, not the organization, him, in your relationship with him. Maybe you need to know that there's one, and his name is Jesus. He is the son of God. He loves you, and he gave his life for you. He died up on that cross for you, and he cares about what you're going through. And even more than that, the Bible says in John 15, 15, that he is my friend That's what it says. I want you to see it. No longer do I call you servants. It says in John 15, 15, I have called you, you see it? Master servant. Lightning bolts. You screwed up again. Ah. I don't know what kind of mood has got in today. Yeah, that's a great representation of Christ. No, it is, I call you friends. I'm for you. I love you. I want an intimate relationship with you. Guys, he's the first one that I talk to every day. When I mess up, and listen to me, I mess up. He's the first one I run to. Not because I'm afraid of him or I'm like, oh gosh, I got to get right or I'm going to get left. I want to make the rapture. No. I run to him because I know he wants to help me. He wants to help me. I screwed up on the same thing again. And he wants to help me. He cares for me. That's the perspective change. It's, it's when my kids are teenagers and they screw up, which they will. I don't want them to be like, oh my gosh, what is my dad going to say? My dad's going to kill me. I want them to say, oh my gosh, I got to call my dad. My dad's going to help me get out of this. And those of you that have been in situations like that, you know what it's like to rescue somebody out of their own bad decision. There's nothing but overflowing love. That is the relationship that we're going towards. Amen, somebody? And so... What does it say? John 14, 15. If you love me, you will obey what I command. Let me be clear. For most of my Christian walk, I read that from the wrong source. And leave that scripture up there just for a second. I read that like this. If you love me, prove it. If you love me, you you better be doing what I said. That's not what it's saying. 
Do you know what it's saying? Jesus is saying, hey, if you love me, you will obey what I command. If your heart's towards me, you're going to just you should be walking. In, you'll find yourself in alignment. might take a second, but that love will draw you over because you don't want anything to do with the world. And the, the things that you mess up on the way, it's like, I don't, I don't want to do that. I want to go back to who I was. I want to go back to that junk, to the depression that's with that. I want to serve you, God. I love you. And, and what will happen? You'll obey God. Do you see the difference in the source? And so look at this. What side of the comma is your relationship with God on? Because if you start with, I better obey, oh my gosh, otherwise he's going to think I don't love him, you're reading the scripture backwards. He says, if you love me, you will do it. You'll see it come to pass. Wow. 2 Corinthians 5.14, in fact, I would even say this, you'll be compelled to do it. Scripture says this, 2 Corinthians, for Christ's love compels us. It's the love. It's the relational component. That's what's going to bring you into alignment with him. And that, he wants you to be a person that can obey and serve him and, and do great things, but it's not going to be out of striving and scheming and maneuvering and just behavior modification. It's going to be out of a heart to want to serve your God. Say amen, somebody. You know, this church helps so many people. And I think, man, why do we help people? Why, do we, why are we so generous? And you are. You're so generous. Why do we give so much money to missions? It's because of love. I think about relationships, you know, spouse relationships, like my relationship with my wife. I'm not in a relationship with Kaya, and, and I've got the law, the Ten Commandments, and it says, thou shalt not commit adultery. I'm like, all right, it's what the law says, so I'm just not going to do it. You know, <laughs> no, I love Kaya, so I don't want to do that. I don't want to mess up this beautiful thing that we have. Does that make sense, everybody? And so, therefore, I'm going to obey what he commands. Massive. Write it down. I can. You should say this to yourself. I can fulfill the commands of the Bible. How? Better by falling in love with God rather than trying just to obey everything. You and fall in love with God, that's what will change your walk with him. This is who we are in your chapel. This is Jesus. Number two got to move on. Three responses when you have that right source. Number two, I will respond to sin with life. Respond to the sin that I face, the sin that happens with life. So you're going to sin, and other people around you are going to sin as well. How are you going to respond to that? Because how you respond is going to be very telling to to, to where you're sourcing from, and and it's going to be very telling to your relationship with God. You know, uh, when many of us in the room, we, we go on social media or watch your cable news network, uh, there's a lot of things that you can see and point at that are so frustrating today, yeah? A lot of things in the news, and you're like, it shouldn't be that way, and political things, and, 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 and there'll just be outright sin that's being pushed, and if you don't accept the sin, then, then you're wrong, and you're not inclusive, and, and they force diversity, you know, because that's the way to do it. And, and, and it's all of these concepts that just grieve our hearts sometimes. And, and everybody's doing something I don't like. And, and it's easy for us in the room who know God to get triggered, get upset about it, start being like, well, you don't know what you're talking about, and start pointing fingers at everybody. And here's the hard thing, is when you know God and you know the truth, it's very easy to point fingers. Because somebody can walk into this church and they might not be dressed like everybody else and be easy for you to point fingers. Maybe they go out in between services and they're serving on the go team and you catch somebody with their lanyard on, on a smoke break. And it's easy to go point at them and be like, that ain't right. Or what you can do is delight that God is at work. Because there's no such spiritual gift as you pointing a finger. That's what John 3 says. God didn't go through all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He came to do what? To help, to put it all right again. I'm trying to get this thing together. I'm trying to help people. And so listen, you can either like make your point known, like show everybody you're right. I'm going to make sure that they know. I'm going to make a point. Or you can make a difference. See the difference? How about this one? And this is gratifying for me to say. I know that I'm right. High five me, right? Like, I'm right. So because I'm right, I'm going to be secure in that, and I don't have to point fingers at everybody. I'm going to help them along the journey. Does that make sense? 
being a little bit silly at the, uh, at the front end. But the truth is, you don't need to go and call everybody out. You need to call them in. There's too many in our household of faith that have that accusing finger to point at everybody else to tell them how bad that they are. There was a woman that was caught in adultery in the Bible. You can read it. It's, it's in the gospel somewhere. I don't know. Anyway, but, but Jesus had this encounter. And this woman was brought before him. And they, they wanted her to be stoned. And that was the sentence of the day. That was law. And, and the law was this. They had to bring uh, the person that was accused before a rabbi because the rabbi would be the one that would actually cast the judgment. They had the legal authority, kind of like a judge, to say, okay. But you had to make sure there was at least two or three witnesses that could say, yeah, we saw this happen. And they threw the woman there, not the man. We just tell you, if they were interested in justice, it wouldn't have just been the woman. It would have been both of them. Takes two to tango or whatever they were doing. And so, so these, these religious Jews, the Pharisees, throw this woman, and, and Jesus casts judgment. What's his judgment? Okay. You who have no sin, you just cast the first stone. So he stayed within the law. He had to fulfill his rabbinical duty. He had to do what was right. He cast the judgment. Okay, let's kill her. Okay, But you who without sin, you cast the first stone. And what happened was the Bible said from the old to the young, they dropped their stones and they walked away. They had to have two or three accusers in order for the judgment to be carried out. All the accusers left. Bible says he went down, he wrote in the sand, he looked over at the woman, he said, where are your accusers? And she says, like, they're not here. I'm sure like, yes. And he says, neither do I accuse you, grace. Now go and sin no more, truth. What does it say in Proverbs, through the Gospels, all through the Council of Scripture? Let not mercy and truth forsake thee. Let not grace and truth, mercy and truth forsake. He, he leads with mercy, but then he gives the, don't do this again. You're tearing yourself up. And so grace, what does it do? It invites you to be free, and it is the truth that sets you free. Too often, church, us, our family, this house, we lead with truth. Because like I said, we have the corner on truth. And what we need to do is lead with grace. You know what they're going through. And if you can remember back when you weren't so high and mighty, back when you didn't have it all figured out, if you can remember, maybe you could think they're doing these things out of a great deficit in their relationship with God, and he has more. Wow. I remember when we first planted the church, I ran into one of the people in our launch team party, and he was there eating breakfast with his grandpa, and I had just a second to say hi to him, and uh, he asked me about the church and asked me some of the questions about our doctrine, and he said, well, young man, and remember, I was 26 when I planted this church. He says, young man, when I go to church, I want to leave guilty every single week. Okay, well, good to meet you, you know, and I... <laughs> I went on my way, but, you know, that really bothered me because the truth is this. Write it down. Jesus came to set me free, not to make me sorry. What point does he have to prove that he didn't already write down? He knows that he's right. He's secure in it. And so he's, he's trying to see us through to set us free. You don't need to leave this place guilty. There's a difference in between conviction, which comes from God. It's a conviction that says, man, i gotta, I got to change some things in my life, versus condemnation, guilt. Guilty. You know what? When I was a sinner, nobody had to tell me that I was guilty. I knew that I was guilty. I knew everything that I was doing was wrong. In fact, I would joke with my friends, I'm going to hell. I'm just telling you, I'm going to burn in hell forever. I knew it. I would joke about it. They need to know that there's a God that can set you free out of all of that. That's Jesus. That is this church. Can I hear an amen? amen? Number three, three responses when you have the right source. Number three, I will guard my heart from going back. Guard my heart from going back. So in the symbolism of this, right, there's two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And here's what I found. If you do overcome this and you start to source from the tree of life, there's always going to be a vine, if you will, that wants to take you back over to the knowledge of good and evil. What I found is, is, is I get closer to God, is I get more spiritual and I see things that are happening in the world, it grieves my heart. 
when I see some of the news stories, it grieves my heart. And what happens? I want to go back to this. But what I have to realize is this. This is not going to save the world. Those street preachers that are yelling at people, they make my job very hard. The truth of the matter is, I can't swing back after I started sourcing out of life. I can't swing back to that knowledge of good and evil, the rights and wrongs, and weighing everybody out, who they are, their value by what they do. C.S. Lewis put it this way, human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. It's this vine that wants to swing you over to the system of measurement so you can say that you're good. Something you can point at in your own strength. What do we do? We need to show people the goodness of our God. What do we do? We need to help people to find freedom in their relationship with Jesus. There's so much more I even want to say today, but i got to wrap up this message. Uh, there was a Gallup poll that was done, and it was over the last two years, and it was about mental health. They found this, that every demographic, so uh, young and old, rich and poor, Republican, Democrat, independent, uh, every demographic you can think of, married or not, they all had reported a decline in their mental health, mental stability, and mental well-being with the exception of one demographic. And by the way, this was a secular poll, a secular study. The one group of people that did not have a decline that actually recorded an increase in mental health and stability was those that attended church every single week. Do you see why we opened when everybody else was shut? It's, it's for the reason that you can't start swinging back to that other vine. You have to stay in sync with God. And when you're trekking with him, he's working things out in your life, your relation. First John chapter 5, I just want you to see this. If you don't have God, you don't have life. We know that, but here's the first part. He who has the Son has, say it with me, has. There's a life-giving relationship offered to you today. And there's the system of measurement that the world loves, religious people love. It's sourcing from the knowledge of good and evil. My encouragement to you today is find your life-giving relationship with Jesus because God is good. Heavenly Father, thank you for meeting us in this place. And thank you for your word. Thank you that you're touching people's hearts even right now as I preach. God, I pray that as I bring this message that people abandon their religion, their system of measurement. Maybe they see where they've been mistreated by it. Maybe they see areas of their life, pockets of complacency where they've sunk into that judgment. And God, they also see this life-giving relationship, and they want that. God, I pray for Christians that have been serving you for years to re-up their commitment to that life-giving relationship with you. God, I pray for those that are just hearing this, that maybe have lived out a whole existence with the system of weights and measurements, but now today are hearing about their loving God, and it's clicking. Those scriptures that they even knew, it's clicking. And they want to be the people that love people into this kingdom, that love people through, see people through, not see through people. And God, I do pray for those that are in the sound of my voice that don't know you. Help me to find them in Jesus' name. Head bowed, eyes closed just for another minute. If you came into this room or you're listening to this and you'd say, Pastor Joe, as I hear about a loving God, I know this, my life's not right with God. Whatever that means for you. Maybe you'd say, I, I, I was a Christian, but I walked away. Whatever that even means. But you hear about God, you're like, I gotta get back home. Or maybe you're a person that has felt that there's more and you heard today about a loving God and you know that you got to make your peace with a God that stands outside of the circumstance that you're in. Wherever you're at with that, the Bible says that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The Bible says calling him Lord. What does that mean? It means calling Jesus, God's only son, right? Calling him boss, calling him Lord, saying, I'm not such a good God over my life. But Jesus, I give you my life. You be the God of my life. 
Scripture says that when you do that, you're saved. What does that mean? It means that when you die, you avoid a Christless hell. You go on to heaven. Yes. But it also means eternal life springs up in you today. That, that want to serve God, that, that change that you need so drastically, that born-again moment can unfold in you. If that's you in the sound of my voice and you want to make your peace with God, God already made peace. He's looking for you to buy into the deal. So with heads bowed and eyes closed, we're going to pray. If you mean it, you'll be saved. Church, I want you to say this with me, supporting those people that are accepting Christ and also as a declaration of your faith. Pray this out loud with me. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross in my place for my sin so I can be forgiven. You raised him from the dead. This I believe. So with my heart and with these words, I confess Jesus Christ is my Lord. I surrender now. Jesus, I call on you. Come into my life. Forgive my sin. Put your spirit within me. I receive all that you have for me. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for making all things new. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, let's give it up for those people that accepted Christ. Louder than that, from death to life, somebody, come on. And the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine on you, be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. And as you go, have a great week, guys. I love you. We hope that you were encouraged and brought closer to God during this message. You can listen to any of our past messages and series either on this podcast or on newchapel.com slash watch. And be sure to connect with us on Facebook or Instagram to stay up to date on everything happening here at New Chapel.